This week's Behind the Idea is about Alibaba. First, we talked to Anne Stevenson Yang of J Capital Research. She's one of the key voices on investing in China in general, and a noted bear on Alibaba. We asked her to explain how Alibaba's main businesses go together. Let's do a little thought experiment here. Let's pretend Alibaba's name is the People's Department Store Number One online. Now, would anybody invest in that? Then we asked what the best way was to understand Alibaba. There, there is no way to understand Alibaba. I don't think Alibaba management understands Alibaba. We then had a conversation with Julian Lin, whose bullish piece had started our conversation a few weeks before. He has built a strong following on Seeking Alpha, and he's not afraid to take a bold stance. We spoke to him as news that Jack Ma might step down was breaking, and asked him what he thought about it as a bull. I, I don't think that Alibaba will suffer if Jack Ma were to leave. However, I, I, I think that this is a bluff. To be honest, I do not think he's going to retire early. I think in this regard, wow. he's very similar to Elon Musk that he likes to talk. I do, I do not believe that he's going to retire early. It's, I just don't buy it. I recorded the call with Anne on August 24th as a one-on-one call. Mike and I spoke to Julian on September 7th. Anne, Mike, and I have no positions in any stocks named. Julian is long Facebook, Alphabet, Alibaba, Altaba, and Amazon. Behind the Idea is the podcast that breaks down ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on the podcast is meant to be investment advice of any sort. You can sign up for Behind the Idea on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Jack Ma leaving, the stock at 52-week lows, and the news full of talks of a trade war. Is Alibaba stepping into a brave new world, or perpetuating the pattern of large Chinese firms we can't quite trust? Welcome to Behind the Idea. Today we're speaking with Ann Stevenson Yang of J Capital Research about Alibaba and to some degree about China as well. So Ann, welcome on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to just start with what we spoke about on our previous podcast was the basic bull thesis about Alibaba, which we're recording this right after they reported their Q1. And the basic thesis is something like, Alibaba is the Chinese internet company. I know there are a couple others that are big, but it combines eBay, it combines Amazon, it combines YouTube, it's got a ton of investments, it's growing fast. And so even before we get more into the details, just what on the surface is, what do you think about that surface level narrative of Alibaba? I... I, I, I hardly know what to say. I don't know why that's a why that's an investment narrative. First of all, why would you want to combine those companies as an investor? What's good about it? I mean, I I also very much enjoy corporate charity, and so I love YouTube. I love Amazon services. You know, I love it when companies are are heavily investing in order to make me happy. That doesn't mean that as an investor that I w- I would love them. Secondly. What does that what does that actually mean? Let's do a little thought experiment here. Let's pretend Alibaba's name is the people's department store number one online. Now, would anybody invest in that? Because 
because I, I think that American investors are, are given given the experience since about 2009, American investors are pretty reluctant to hand their capital to uh, to Chinese investors to uh, to invest it on their behalf. So why is it that when you call it Alibaba and you say that it's a private company, then everybody is willing to do that? I, I find it actually sort of surprising and confusing. What is so the the distinction you're drawing is private and public, and I guess that's going to be a theme that I'll come back to. But just how much one of the things I'm really interested about is that Alibaba is sort of a representative of China in a way that even though those companies that I named are to some degree. In the U.S., we have a lot of companies that sort of are, whatever, pinnacles of modern tech industry or whatever else. And Alibaba, it's like how much, when we talk about Alibaba as a potential investment, how much does the, the role of the private versus public, like how much is the Chinese government sort of looming either positively or negatively for Alibaba or how much, when you when you draw that sort of comparison to the old to like the people's department store, how much is that something that I should be thinking about if I'm looking at Alibaba as a stock? Well, if you, I mean, you just said that you see, uh, or, or that investors see Alibaba as some kind of avatar, uh, avatar, sorry, for the, for the Chinese system and the Chinese economy. Well, that's inextricable from the Chinese uh, political and economic system. So I think you answer your own question right there. Uh, to the extent that, China, that that Alibaba is a representative of the Chinese economy, it's a representative of the Chinese political system. So you can like that or not like that. But it, what, what I find interesting is that people are so selective about the ways in which it's representative. So if if someone, if the the average U.S. investor were asked, well, do you want to put you know two hundred fifty billion dollars into HNA Corp? Um, because it represents the Chinese economy, then you know everybody would would run away screaming. Um, you know, look at the look at the disaster that private investments in P2P platforms have been in China recently, with uh, with pro public protests and all sorts of bankruptcies and stuff like that. Well, why is it why is that very different from what Alibaba is? I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but there are, there are other companies. I, I want to come back to Alibaba more specifically in a second, but just we have Tencent, for example, which is having not a great year, but over the long haul has been a winning stock and is one that is also kind of considered your China exposure play. Uh, JD.com is... E- also okay also not having a great year i'm just kind of pulling up i haven't looked so closely at the recent numbers but jd.com or baidu or you know there there are these companies that are considered sort of success stories considered there's a distinction and i guess maybe i'll draw you mentioned 2009 and sort of the the way reluctance to fund china specifically but we had that wild period in the early 2010s where it seemed like there were a lot of China companies that were just clearly not what they claimed to be. And there, there were a lot of fraud. There was a lot of sort of noteworthy cases of companies going down. 
it seems like this new era of tech companies is given more respect and, and more credibility by the market. What do you think, given that they're sort of representative of China as a whole, like what do you think is causing the distinction where people are willing to share, willing to invest in a company like Alibaba or in a company like Tencent, but more reluctant to trust China otherwise? Well, I, I think it's not a mistake that the massive um, asset aggregators like Tencent, Alibaba, Wanda, HNA, Anbang, that these companies have emerged only since 2009 when the uh, money, money supply in China started to expand uh, geometrically. Hmm. And these aggregators of assets have be, you know, there are a few of them that for various reasons, you know, associated with, with politics, with luck, with access to overseas markets and things like that. Um, so some of these companies have become extremely large. I think that's really the difference between uh, a Tencent and Alibaba, a Wanda and a China Agritech and, you know, some of the, some of the reverse merger problem companies of the past uh, is, is size. So what is, why, why, do, why do people invest in them now when they didn't invest in them more before? It's really a matter of who invests in them and what, what scale of money we're talking about. I don't think it's really necessarily a difference in kind. Okay. Let's, let's come back to, to Baba specifically and their, their business. You've, you've in the past, uh, there's, there's a presentation from Jay Capital that's on the internet about uh, fundamental concerns about Baba's e-commerce opportunities. So just their actual business, and they just so they just reported, and so we can use that as a data point. They reported sixty percent revenue growth. You know, core commerce grew sixty-one percent, and then all those other. You know, they're, they're posting. If you just look at their revenue numbers, they're posting very healthy numbers. I know they when you get further down the line, they're not getting full leverage on that. And some of the other metrics are not growing as much, but just from a fundamental, what opportunities they, they have, if, if we, if again, still sort of taking it on his face, what do you see? How does that skepticism of their actual e-commerce opportunity fit with the fact that they still seem to be posting these really impressive revenue growth numbers? Well, I mean, if you gave me a couple billion dollars and I acquired Toys R Us, then I'd post really impressive revenue numbers as well. The the the, the sort of funny thing, you know, Alibaba is this massive blob of a business that reports kind of selectively and without without any uh, any clear year on year comparison. You almost feel like you know why bother making reports to the to the public because reports really don't provide much detail on the business. So Alibaba, for example, claims that it has uh, a big data business and can analyze uh, massive amounts of data. So why is it that Alibaba can't tell investors what its e-commerce mix is, what what the product mix is, and how come? We can't find out what what a like on like comparison is of the GMV and of the uh, of, of the revenue. You know, pre consolidation of businesses. You know, how come they can't tell us, for example, uh, how many items of clothing were sold online? 
or what percentage of the online sales were from electronics or something like that. That would be very easy data for Alibaba to pull, but Alibaba doesn't pull that data. And I think it's very clear why that is, because it would be an uncomfortable comparison. So there was recently a report out of, maybe it was in the Wall Street Journal. I think it came originally out of the, the Macro Polo Institute in, in Chicago, uh, showing that Alibaba is now the biggest trader of uh, non-performing uh, assets in China. So, and that happened very quickly. So this is, you know, this is many billions of dollars every quarter. So how come we don't hear anything about that in the report? So my problem with Alibaba is just that I I don't understand it. You know, I don't understand what it is. So GMV is rising, for example, but commission revenue is 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 falling. So is if you calculate, then the then the commission on each transaction is falling. So did they actually? Are they actually charging less per transaction or is GMV actually going down? There are all sorts of, you know, weird things like that that are that are unexplained in the financials or on the calls. Where if we're looking for how to, for example, if I'm looking at Alibaba and I'm trying to understand all the pockmarks on the stories to better understand whether or not I'm comfortable with it, where should I be looking? Because I know you, you Right now, you mentioned a couple of things with the GMV and the commission delta, for example. And then there's also, you wrote up an article in Bloomberg and you kind of offhand mentioned that the acquisition values are getting written up and that's kind of fudging their balance sheet a little bit is the implication. And I know also uh, you've spoken with the person behind Deep Throat IPO and I didn't look super closely at the recent post he made, but he just kind of went through their 20F and raised sort of all the questions about it. Where should I be? Maybe this is a hopeless endeavor, but where should I be looking if I want to really understand? You you said you struggled to understand it, but like, where should I be asking questions about Alibaba most after I start with that sort of top line impressiveness and, and still profit growth based on their adjusted numbers? Where should I be looking after that to kind of understand better What's going on? What are the biggest concerns that I need to address if I'm looking at Alibaba? There, there is no way to understand Alibaba. I don't think Alibaba management understands Alibaba. The, the, you can invest in Alibaba on a momentum basis if you think more people are going to invest in it and the price is going to go up, then invest in it. I, I don't think that there's any other basis on which to invest in Alibaba. But that's a perfectly good one. It's made people a lot of money over the last few years. So what is what is the game then? What is, in other words, what do you? The game is that as long as money's going into China, invest in Alibaba and Tencent, and uh, and when money starts to reverse, when capital flows begin to reverse, then disinvest from Alibaba and Tencent. I think it's really as simple as that. Okay, so because one of the things you said was you sort of implied that we don't really know what their organic growth is and. And I noticed in the 10Q, they don't have the number, they don't have the word organic and, or not the 10Q, whatever they just reported their, their press release. And on the 20F, I don't think they mention any sort of, here's our organic growth number. But so that reminds me of a roll up that reminds me of Valiant or other companies where they're rolling up companies. And then there's sort of this, it's hard to really understand what they're buying versus what is actually growing. 
but I'm just trying to understand, like, from your... I know this is probably unknowable, but is this... If if we're supposed to ask so many questions about Baba, like, what is the company... What is the basis of the company? Is it really just meant to be this... And, you know, those other ones, Anbang or Tencent or H&A, like, are they just there to kind of be a store of capital or, or or an acquirer or like i'm just trying to understand what what they're yeah it's a huge investment bank uh just as tencent is so it's the um you know it's an incredibly successful player in the public markets for for all of the bits and pieces of the chinese economy that that are private um, which is something that's of, uh, of great advantage to the Chinese government. So all you need to do is come near either Alibaba or Tencent, you know, have them bless you with a private equity investment or an acquisition from any portion of the, of the enterprise, public or private, um, and then your valuation will, you know, automatically double or triple or, or up by a factor of 10. So uh, everybody wants to be, be uh you know, touched by one one of those two companies. So that's that's their fundamental function in the world, um, and it's a very it's been a very valuable function for for all of the private companies in China. But you know, this perception that Alibaba is the fundamentally the uh, purchase of consumer goods online is is simply just not the case. I mean, I can tell you, our company has a software platform where we um, we we access transaction values off of the Alibaba platforms as well as some others, and we analyze uh, different product categories. And, you know, we don't see that kind of growth. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the Alibaba growth is coming from someplace or other, but if you simply look at, at uh, the transactions in, let's say, consumer electronics or clothing or, um, or or cosmetics or some of the other categories that we look at online, we don't see that kind of growth in, in sales volume month to month. Do you see when, either from studying it or when you're in China or, or whatever else, do you actually see Alibaba in people's lives the way an Amazon is in the U.S. or the way that some of these other companies are where we're, you know, I guess I'm trying to get at how much, how much is sure, there? Absolutely. And everybody, everybody uses the Alibaba platforms um, and everybody carries them around on their phones. Absolutely, absolutely ubiquitous. Um, but also don't forget that the average um, income in China, the, especially the average internet users income is, is I believe the average is about 5,000 renminbi per month. Um, and so the spending on on Alibaba is something clo- and something close to thirty percent of um, of gross income per year per user, which seems like an awful lot, right? So it probably includes an an, an awful lot of other things besides consumer spending. At any rate, yeah, the Alibaba platforms are ubiquitous. Everybody uses them. They're they're uh, very much embedded in in everyday life. Just, just like Amazon, but you know, on steroids. Okay, so, so there is, so there is a business there. It's an inchoate one that combines all this other stuff, and it's hard to understand the way that we would expect to understand a public business and to be able to assess it's a publicly traded business and be able to assess its um, prospects. 
we just don't have that with Baba, which makes it just makes it hard to really get your head around. Is that is that more or less the high level uh, summary of what your your view is? I, I guess you could say that. You, you just have no idea whether this business is profitable and whether inve- public investors will ever get a piece of that profit. And I would I would say to both the answer to both questions is uh, is no. But you know. Uh, I, I don't know really any better than anybody else does. So that leads me to sort of, from a short perspective, uh, is there, and it has slowed down the stock. I think it's it's probably about flat year over year. It actually didn't respond all that positively to yesterday's earnings. Is there anything that would cause this to, the music to stop? You have the your article in Bloomberg you wrote about just sort of the idea that the U.S. as well as China are not the regulatory front is not as strong as it needs to be in some cases, or, or they're they're just we're not enforcing regulations as much as necessary in those two markets. And because Baba is such a representative of China, it would seem hard to imagine to me that China would come in and regulate the company in any serious way. So does something, you, you mentioned the capital flows, but is that the, is there anything else that could catalyze a change in how BABA is perceived by the market in your view? Or is it just one of those, it'll go up until it stops or it'll, whatever, it will, it will kind of stay above gravity for until it doesn't? I don't know. I think it's a, a matter of, um, I, I don't think it's a matter of, particular reporting that Baba does or doesn't do. Uh, it's a matter of capital flows, that market valuation and sentiment and, and general sentiment about China. And I do think that we're seeing a turn in, in those things right now. But, you know, I, I really just don't know anything about how markets are rise and fall. But uh, if I were if I were personally investing, I, I, this would not be a time to buy Alibaba, I would think. When you say the what, what are you seeing as far as I mean, as I pulled up all those stocks, I saw these big tech leaders are not having good years in the market. But what are you seeing as far as what's causing this turn in Chinese sentiment? Is it the conflict, the the trade issues with the U.S. right now, or what else is raising the the red flag for China right now? Well, I think there's there's generally more market skepticism about about China's growth and the robust or lack of robust nature of its uh, of its consumer growth and and more demand to see real numbers. As you saw, you know Alibaba's report quarter report with its 61% revenue growth. You know, if that had happened two years ago, then the stock would have would have risen. I think, and I think now people are more focused on on the. Uh, Deterioration in cash generation, the, uh, the the murky acquisition accounting, all of the different acquisitions, things like that. So, so that that's a sentiment change. But I think overall, it's uh, it's it's a shift in capital flows where China is right now struggling uh, to find to to find income sources of incoming hard cash, and I think that. Um, that we're going to start seeing seeing the flows uh, reverse and uh, flow outwards as they did in in 2015, and that will be very negative to all of these stocks. 
I mean, in the most obvious way, because of the currency. So the currency has been depreciating, and I think that we're in for significant more depreciation. Okay, interesting. And one of the things I, uh, I'm i curious about with China is that most of the, and this could be my self-selection, but most of the people I see online are skeptical of, they're bearish, I guess is the trivial way to put it, about China, just about the the way the government is managing the economy, the way the transparency issues, and this filters down to tech companies as well. And I'm just curious if you see, are there other experts out there who have sort of interesting angles that are more positive about China's direction? Or is there somebody who's looking at this situation and is there a counter narrative to what you're saying? You're, you're saying that China is in a position where they're going to see capital outflows, which is going to crimp their ability to grow and crimp these stocks and, and just crimp China in general. Is there a counter narrative, which I guess is relevant for the stock market because the market hasn't priced this in yet. So is there something out there that speaks against what you're, you're saying that you found at least worth the time to consider? Hmm. I think uh, there, there are those who claim that that China is uh, rebalancing its economy and that therefore consumption is rising more quickly than GDP. I think that if you look more carefully at the numbers, you find that that is not the case and that in fact that cannot be the case because of the acceleration of investment and the, the you know the link between investment and consumption indicates that you can't have you can't have both things rising faster than GDP. Um, and investment is rising much, much faster than GDP, as it always has. So, but I, I think the, the the bulk of China watchers and investors have basically just disagree around one central question: Will China have a financial crisis, or will it just kind of muddle through? But I think everyone is pretty much aligned around the idea that China will grow more slowly into the future, uh, and in, in fact. So are every, you know, all the economists in China. So I'm not sure it's a very controversial issue at all. Okay. And what do you, so without trying to pin you to a side, do you, do you think that this is going to be something like 2015 or do you think this is going to be a more serious with this pending slowdown? Is this going to be something that's more, uh, where, where you mean, do you... I think there will be a financial crisis or not? Yeah. It, it, it all depends on, on how you define a financial crisis. I, I don't think the banks will fail. Um, I, for, for me, a financial crisis is defined uh, in China by a, a, a sort of forced devaluation of the currency. And I think that, yes, that will happen. Okay. 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 Interesting. So maybe to sort of summarize and wrap this up a little bit, what what is the... What is it that the average U.S.-based investor is just not yet understanding about China? Because we still, you know, there's still the sort of this knee-jerk, I need exposure to China or I need exposure to, you know, the same way I want exposure to emerging markets or I want exposure to Europe or whatever else. What are we missing? What are, What is not, because I think there's still sort of this awareness that China is a little different. There's this awareness that China is, you can't quite take it at the level that you can take U.S. numbers or U.S. reporting or 
other developed markets. But what is it that we're still not quite understanding about China in 2018 and about the state of the, their markets and their economy that we, you know, need to be spending more time thinking about or like avoiding the com- the country as a result. I guess people have this uh, this sense that everyone has a has a pretty good apprehension that that China has uh, has spent too much trying to drive drive infrastructure growth and that it's over leveraged, right? But a lot of people think that this is some some somehow a discrete issue that's uh, that's contained within government circuits and that there's this whole separate part of it. There's a bright line between government and private and that there are private comp- companies that operate in a totally different economy. This is just really not the case. Every every single part of the economy and every actor in the economy is affected by the uh, by, by the political strategy of overinvestment to drive infrastructure growth and and uh, consequent accumulation of bad debt, and that will have a lot of implications for the economy for the future. That that doesn't mean don't invest in anything Chinese. It, it has some positive implications, which will mean um, I think that as uh, there, there comes a point when you can't keep overinvesting because it simply doesn't work anymore, um, and and you reach your you reach your debt limit and things just kind of halt and you you go into I think that China will go into a recession. Um, so when that happens, then you stop overinvesting and a lot of companies stop receiving like stupid capital, like, you know, OFO and these bike sharing companies that, that have just been, you know, you, you, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of, of bikes heaped up and, and being thrown away because all of these companies have bought too many bikes and they charge five cents per ride. And, you know, and they're all these dumb capital ideas like an umbrella sharing company. And, you know, these things will go away and then the real consumer companies will improve their margins. Um, and, and I think that there will be a lot of stuff to invest in in China, but we have to go through the debt crisis first uh, an adjustment in the currency and uh, and sort of get back to the work of finding real companies that do real work and have real profit. So it doesn't, when you describe that, it doesn't sound all that different from questions that we might raise about during the dot-com bust or during even the, to a lesser degree, but we've, people are, there's a lot of money going into scooters in Silicon Valley too. And so it sounds like it's a similar sort of there's this over whether it's in the U.S. We it's always about the the low or recently about the low rates and just the the easy money that's fueling this sort of stuff. It sounds like without that sort of normalcy, it becomes hard to s- sort the wheat from the chaff. And so once you have that shakeout, the more solid businesses will stand out more as compared to. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's absolutely right. So, so you know, if you Alibaba is like, and, and the Chinese economy generally is kind of like Tesla. You know, you 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 invest in it because you have a kind of vague idea about a promise of a business that that Tesla represents it's doing, but probably isn't really doing. You know, I'd rather put my money in in a real car company that knows how to make profitable make cars profitably, and the same thing with. Uh, you know, these, these avatars of the Chinese economy. So, yeah, I think that's exactly the right explanation. Okay. That's really interesting. I think it's just, 
there's still just such attraction for for growth and then for you want to be smart enough to to invest in a baba or invest in jd is a super popular value investor stock 10 cent is also a little bit more off the radar but yeah it, it's it's one of those it's sort of the dunning kruger effect where you know just it seems like you can know just enough to think that there's a good opportunity but if you don't understand what's going on sort of behind the scenes in china and it sounds like it's not so hard to know about those things you can get yourself into trouble so that's really interesting yeah i mean i think um you know as as i say for example alibaba is ubiquitous in china everybody uses it everybody loves alibaba but there's way more alibaba activity in tier one cities and in the coast, um, in the, the 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 coastal the, the coastal tier one cities, actually they're all they're all coastal. But anyway, um, in the coastal cities than any other place, and yet Alibaba is claiming all of its growth from the interior cities. I think you'll find when you walk through China that this is really not the case when it comes to strictly commerce. There's a whole lot of stuff like that. At any rate, I, I, I think you're right. It's just it's just a market bubble phenomenon. It goes on for a long time and then it stops. Yeah, that's yeah, and that's the other. We we sort of take China and we forget how massive it is and how how what might be happening in Shanghai or Beijing or Shenzhen is not going to be what's happening deeper deeper in the country. So exactly, it's very oh. true. Okay, thank you so much, Anne. I really enjoyed this. Um, sure, nice to talk to you, Daniel. Take care. We'll get to our conversation with Julian Lin in a moment, but first, Mike has a quick word from our sponsor. Behind the Idea is brought to you by Seeking Alpha Essential. Seeking Alpha Essential gives exclusive access to Seeking Alpha's immense archive of investment research, commentary, and analysis. When Daniel and I go to start putting together an episode of Behind the Idea, We use a lot of the tools that are available on Seeking Alpha Essential. We'll dive into the archive, see what people were saying about a stock maybe a year, two years, three years ago, get a better sense using valuation tools and other items available on the quote page to see where a stock's trading now relative to its fundamentals, and just generally get a good gut check on what the market, what market participants are thinking about a given stock. Essential helps users make informed, empowered investing decisions fueled by the best analysis, data, and tools available on Seeking Alpha. To start your free trial, go to seekingalpha.com essential. Essential, quickly go from in the dark to in the know. Now let's get back to Alibaba as we speak with Seeking Alpha author Julian Lin about his long thesis and why he's holding on to his shares. Welcome to Behind the Idea. We're continuing our Alibaba discussion with Julian Lin. He's a Seeking Alpha author whose article on Alibaba launched this whole discussion. And I'm here, of course, with Daniel. And uh, welcome, Julian. Thanks for having me. Julian, just to kind of start your thesis is as we understood it was essentially alibaba has youtube characteristics they they have ownership in a youtube like business 
They have ownership. Their sort of original business is sort of an eBay-like business. They also have Amazon cloud service business and then a bunch of other investments in different firms in China. And so I guess just as a fundamental question is, why do you think those businesses work well together? In other words, why is that a positive characteristic that they have these different focuses and these different kind of units under the Alibaba brand or company name? Sure. That's a good question. And my short answer, surprisingly, might be they just don't work together. These businesses definitely do not go together. Like they're, and, and I should clarify that even though they have a video streaming business that's very similar to YouTube, however, in China, they have many competing YouTube. So it's not really YouTube in that when, American, when an American hears YouTube, they think of the video streaming platform. But in China, it is a video streaming platform. So it's not as dominant as YouTube is in America. But to answer your main question, it doesn't, they, don't, they don't go together, right? They have their, obviously, their e-commerce platforms, their Tmall, and their Taobao. Those two go together because it's a peer-to-peer versus a business to consumer. So those two are very, very complementary. However, in, re- in relation to the other stuff, like um, I guess Alipay kind of goes with it, but their social media, their YouTube, it doesn't, they do not go together. So the idea is that it's not really about synergies across the platforms. It's more about imagine in America if five years ago, Facebook and Google were allowed to combine or Amazon was allowed to be invested in Google and Facebook. I mean, that, that's not something that's allowed in America because there will be a lot of antitrust issues when very, very big entities kind of merge together. That's something that's very unique in China, that they've been allowed to basically just absorb many different businesses. And this is something that's also seen in their counterpart, Tencent, as Tencent owns so many different things as well. So it's more of a... The thesis then isn't so much look at how well these fit. It's just you're getting the China internet. You're getting the opportunity to invest in all these different Chinese internet companies who just happen to be under the same company. Is that more or less the... Exactly. You want to think about it sort of like, okay, this is not a good comparison. It's sort of like if you were investing in Warren Buffett, you're getting his core Geico business his core everything else business, and as well as his investment holdings. So those add to book value in addition to the earnings power of his underlying core business. That's how I view Alibaba. So one thing I noticed in your article, and that's coming up a little bit early in this conversation, is sort of comparisons with American firms. And one thing we've come across a lot is the level of understanding that U.S. investors may or may not have in China as a market in general and, as, and in Chinese companies. So can you give us your thoughts on what kind of information differences there might be when uh, U.S. investors are considering an investment in a Chinese company like Alibaba, especially one that's sort of this complicated? Absolutely. So there's there's two parts to this. The first part is more positive for Alibaba. That is in that because Alibaba is mainly just in China or mainly just used by Chinese people, 
that means that the average American will have absolutely zero understanding of what they do. They probably, even if there's an American investor who puts, you know, several thousand dollars into Alibaba, they probably never actually used Alibaba or never used anything of Alibaba. So there's that, that, that indicates to me that if they had understanding then Alibaba could be getting a valuation multiple similar to any of the FANG stocks, particularly Amazon. Uh, Amazon recently broke the $1 trillion mark, but meanwhile, Alibaba is half that valuation. And so there's clearly a valuation disconnect there. And I believe that's mainly based on understanding as well as uh, something else that we'll discuss later, I assume. The other part about the understanding is actually negative for Alibaba. Uh, that's a lot of investors don't really know what they're buying. Uh, they they kind of just put the money in it without really, and they're, they're just trusting that Alibaba is very similar to an American stock. But the big difference with Alibaba and American stocks is that Alibaba is under the jurisdiction of the Chinese government. So in order to maintain compliance and try to escape some sort of, uh, you know, government there, they've created these things called variable interest entities, uh, VIEs, where they incorporate in the Cayman Islands. And this is very this is very different from America because when you buy a stock in Alibaba, really what you are doing is you're buying a share in an empty shell company which has contracts to the earnings of the actual Alibaba. So it's very it increases the complexity dramatically. But I would assume that probably ninety nine percent of the retail investors in Alibaba probably don't know this fact or probably don't care. They just assume it will be okay. And to, to explain how complex this is, I know, uh, I know in your previous podcast, uh, Daniel mentioned that uh, some displeasure with my title on my, pre, on my uh, subsequent article on Alibaba. Yeah, I, I get it. That Go I should sell Alibaba and buy Alibaba. So this, this is, interesting to note here because it's a very illustrative of how complex Alibaba is. So if I could explain why I had that second article, it will, it will show really clearly how complex this is. So basically my thinking for the second article was I had thought I found a way to circumvent the VIE problem. So the, the other stock I wanted to recommend was Altaba. That is the formerly holding company of Yahoo, mm -hmm. which owns the majority of the value there was in Alibaba shares. And the Alibaba shares, they're called original Alibaba shares. So it's supposed to be the shares that were there before the IPO. And according to some sources, many different sources online indicated that these original shares of Alibaba were not VIE structures and they were the underlying company. And so I, I, I believe that and I was looking at it, there wasn't any indication it wasn't very clearly written out anywhere by Yahoo that this is a VIE. This is, this is very risky. Uh, so I had thought that buying that would allow investors to one, get a discount to net asset value and also escape the political risk or the escape the corporate structure risk. So that, that is why I had a huge conviction that no, I was wrong. I should not be buying Alibaba. I should be buying Otaba. And of course, I could have phrased the title a bit better despite my emotions there. But here's where it shows the complexity of the structure in that Alibaba, actually, Altaba does own the VIE structure. So despite many sources believing that the Altaba owns 
that original shares, which are not the VIE, which do not have the problems of the VIE. No, it's actually, it actually does own the VIE. Uh, so that just indicates how complex all of this Alibaba business is. I mean, I got fooled. So, so, and, and to be fair, to be clear, I wasn't mad at you for, uh, for changing your mind. I think changing your mind is, is necessary in the investing climate. I was just coming at you for the, the titles and, you know, and all in good fun. But what you're saying is that Altaba, which I had so much trouble saying last time, you're saying that wasn't a, it's not better to hold that than Alibaba, unless we're getting back into the questions of the arbitrage or whatever else is going on. But in terms of just the ownership of Alibaba's earnings, Altaba gives you no advantage. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. So let's go into that complexity for a second, because the China's, you know, China is the leading economy in the world by pure, what is the, I forget the metric, but GDP or there's some, GDP. yeah, there's, there's, when you don't adjust per capita, it's the leading GDP producer in the world. Correction. China is the largest economy in the world by purchasing power parity, not by GDP. Back to the show. It has a bevy of companies that trade in the U.S. and that are considered credible, legitimate, high-quality companies, a lot of tech companies. And so it's not the same climate as nine or ten years ago when you had a lot of murkier, reverse-merger sorts of companies coming out of China. But still, there's still some distrust of investors are not super willing to give money to Chinese companies to, to Chinese investment advantages. There's still questions about the the opacity of the Chinese government. And you've talked about how closely Alibaba's tied to the government, or you hinted at it, and you've just said how it's so complex. So even before getting back to Alibaba itself, like what makes you comfortable with the company given how complex it is and given the sort of questions that have been raised about investing in China in general? Well, I mean, investors definitely have reasons to be skeptical, especially with Alibaba. So uh, the VIE structure, besides being complex and hard to understand, it also raises a problem of basically you don't really have anyone to sue when, when they're not being uh, shareholder friendly. So, for example, Alibaba has the incident of Alipay a couple couple of years ago, where this was before they IPO'd Alibaba. Uh, Alipay was a 100% owned subsidiary of Alibaba. And Alipay is, for, for those readers who don't know, it's basically PayPal or a Venmo or a Square in China. And it's very, very big. Right now, pretty much cash has almost died in China because everyone is using Alipay. They're connecting their checking accounts to their phones, and they just bring their phone to pay for stuff. So it's pretty interesting. It's a very, very big business. However, here's the problem. So a couple of years ago, out of the blue, then-CEO Jack Ma, I, I don't think he's CEO anymore. I did make that error in my article. But then-CEO Jack Ma, he did say that the Chinese government is having some problems with Alipay. They're saying that because it is owned by foreign investors, it's not supposed to operate in China. So without consulting the shareholders, especially Yahoo, which was a big, big shareholder in Alibaba, he just took it out. 
He just took Alipay out of the Alibaba umbrella and said it's no longer belonging to Alibaba. Hmm. And of course, this was not met with a good reaction from Yahoo. Right. Uh, they, they were they were pretty pissed, but they can't do anything about it. That's what they found. They, they quickly found that even though Jack Ma did something which was pretty weird and not so cool, they, they can't. There's no uh, there's no SEC to come sue them. There's no China's government's not going to work with. The U.S. investors who have Jack Ma or anything, and they didn't—they weren't able to do anything, uh, and they were basically at his mercy to be to play fair. And basically, what Jack Ma agreed to was a thirty-some percent ownership of Alipay. Okay, so in the end, Alibaba now owns about thirty-three percent of Alipay. I think before the ownership, they were basically getting some. Some incentives, some like profit sharing, but it's pretty clear we went from 100% ownership of Alipay to 33%, and that wasn't because we got paid for it. We just it just happened out of the blue. So one of the big risks is their investors are definitely justified in being skeptical of this VIE structure because there's less protection of shareholders here. So their, their big question was why should they trust Chinese companies to manage their money? It's it's a complicated question. Uh, I definitely would not put my money into just any Chinese company that's like a VIE structure and if it's not worth it, right? Uh, in this case, because Alibaba is essentially the Amazon of China, it, it makes it more appealing. However, I do understand the concerns, especially with cash flow. But basically, I, I suppose we're jumping ahead a little bit, but... As I noted in my article, one of the problems with Alibaba is that even though they generate a lot of cash flow, none of the cash flow goes to shareholders. It was a little bit interesting in that they might be generating, they, they claim $15 billion of free cash flow in 2017. However, pretty much all of that went into certain capital expenditures or very, very large investments. So when when the company is not returning capital to shareholders, that creates a problem because shareholders start wondering what you're doing with our money. You know, the whole point of a stock is that you're supposed to return cash to shareholders. This almost sounds like a short case, Julian. <laughs> yes. So this, this brings up to the point where Wall Street still is logical. While, while Wall Street has a lot of emotion, you know, while uh, people tend to sell, buy based on emotion, they do listen to reason. So it's this problem of distrust with Alibaba and their cash flow and their return of capital to shareholders. While it has happened for many years, right? Many years, Alibaba hasn't really been uh, returning capital to shareholders. There's no dividends. Their share, buy their share buybacks are kind of, I mean, they have a share buyback in place, but shares outstanding go up <laughs> because they're issuing more shares than they're out than they're purchasing. So it, it's a meaningless share buyback. How, even though that this has been happening for many years, it could be fixed in an instant. If Ali, I, I really, I firmly believe, if Alibaba were to one, declare very, very large share repurchase program and a dividend, and two, actually do it, that would show more alignment with shareholders. That would show that Alibaba is actually willing to one buy back their VIE shares. And to return capital to shareholders, that that would that would gain trust pretty fast. Okay, so two things there. First, 
What do you think of Jack Ma? He seems like he has this kind of reputation as a superstar kind of figure. Potentially, he also sort of like, I was looking at some pictures before, he's like kind of looks like endearing a little bit because his head is sort of smallish looking or something. I don't know. He looks sort of friendly. Uh, so he, But he does all these things that don't look so shareholder friendly. And around the time of the IPO, there was some talk about just how much cash he was going to be able to extract from shareholders. But you're more familiar with the company than I am. So what do you think of Jack Ma? So we'll, we'll get to the Chinese bias in a moment, but he, if you want to think about Jack Ma, I mean, he's the one who started this business. So he's going to be very similar to a Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk type figure. You know, he's, he's one of those workaholics that likes to innovate, think about the future. So just from that standpoint, he's definitely going to have that kind of superstar personality, superstar reputation. However, as far as shareholder friendly, uh, it, it's important to remember that he does have around like $40, $50 billion U.S. of net worth in Alibaba. And as well, I mean, the Alipay was very weird. It's, it's possible to wonder if maybe he just was not familiar with the stock market so much at that time. And maybe he's learned from it. But of course, when you're dealing with these kind of multi-hundred dollar billion uh, companies, uh, that's not going to cut it. So he's made mistakes. Let's put it that way. He's made mistakes in the past. I, I, I do believe that they need to institute a dividend and some sort of share buyback to show to show more alignment with shareholders. I think that's that's a very, very critical piece that is missing. That uh, until they do that, shareholders, they're always going to have a bias here against Chinese companies. For example, uh in fact, holding cash and retaining cash is not new. Uh, Amazon, Alphabet, even Apple a couple of years ago, they until a couple of year, years ago, that is, they, they've done the same thing. They, they did not pay a dividend. They did not even repurchase shares. They were just kind of hoarding cash. That's how Alphabet has $100 billion of cash. Facebook has $40 billion of cash. That's not okay. However, they get the... They get a pass, don't they? Uh, Alphabet and Facebook, investors still pour their money into them, even though they're not getting cash back. Although nowadays there are share purchases, it's very small. And the reason why Facebook and Alphabet, they get the pass, they're allowed to do this kind of very unshareholder friendly things, is because they're an American company. Alibaba, they're not an American company. They just don't, so they don't get that pass as the same path as these two companies. Got it. Got it. So, okay. Sub follow-up question. Has Jack Ma ever smoked marijuana on a podcast before? You compared him to Elon Musk. So I just have to (laughs) clear that up. up. Is he a, is he a weed smoker? Uh, I, this one, I'm not sure. I have been looking at cannabis (laughs) stocks recently, but I don't know about, Jack Ma and his cannabis intake. I, I would say, okay. as far as I think your question is, is he like that in terms of Elon Musk? I, I don't think he's that. I don't think he's that direction, especially with Elon okay. Musk's recent, you know, his, his stuff. <laughs> he's not a flamethrower guy. Got it. Okay. So the second question I have that kind of gets more to the crux of the issue is 
what's the incentive for Alibaba management to institute a buyback or act in any sort of shareholder-friendly way when, in fact, based on past behavior, we've seen that they can basically take assets off the balance sheet with no recourse to shareholders. What, is, what would drive this change in behavior by Jack Ma or management or whoever's in charge of Alibaba? And we'll just leave it there. What's the incentive to change the behavior? Well, there's there's a lot of different pressures here, and all of none of these are going to be factual, of course, right? Because it tends to be a non-material thing. But for one, uh, they, they have their reputations at stake. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to be remembered as the CEO who just stole from people, right? You, no one wants to remember the Enron CEO, right? That's not, that's not what you want to be remembered for. Like, if you are an Elon Musk figure or you are a Jeff Bezos figure, you want to be remembered for someone as someone who started one of the greatest companies in the world. You don't want to be remembered as the greatest scam in the world. So there's that. And I would assume that matters. The other ones would be Chinese governments. One thing I mentioned in my article is that technically they could close down these DIE structures if they wanted to, because it's, it's in the gray area. It, I could, I, we could argue that it's illegal according to Chinese law, but they don't. So, they're also incentivized to try to keep the uh, market with uh, international investors open. They don't want international investments into China to stock. So Alibaba, I, I would imagine that they would get in trouble from Chinese government if they were to do something too shareholder unfriendly. And the other thing to return to shareholders, I mean, they, they are big shareholders in the company, right? Jack Ma owns around... I think 8% or so of Alibaba. So that, that's a non-insignificant amount of capital there. So assuming they do care about uh, it going up in value, they, they should be doing things like that. Uh, the big reason, though, of course, is if they were to return cash to shareholders, I think that discount to American uh, tech companies would disappear, and it would disappear pretty fast. And it would start trading much, much higher than where it is now. And then... Great. Yeah, good. Okay, that was a better argument than I was expecting. So well done. Daniel, do you have some? Well, I wanted to ask about when, when you said because I'm interested in the, you know, what you call the, the bias against Chinese companies, which I think is like, I think I probably expressed, I don't know if I said bias, but there is that sort of stereotype or that precon preconception or prejudice that one has based on the news stories you read about China. And it's based primarily, I think, on corporate governance and on how much can we trust management. And we're, we're talking, to your credit, we're talking quite a bit about this. So I appreciate that. But what I'm curious about in the comparison to U.S. companies, and I just want to kind of push, not push back, but ask you about this, is you said, for example, you said two different things. You said Facebook and Alphabet are giving credit for reinvesting in their business that Alibaba might not be. And I think the market... I don't think it's a out on a limb stance to say the market gives them credit because they're growing earnings and they're you can see the the tangible returns and not not to say that there aren't questions about their businesses but you can see the tangible returns to their investments over time and so that's it's relatively easy to justify or it's easier to justify them not paying a dividend. I think Alphabet shareholders or Facebook shareholders would be quite disappointed if they paid dividends even though they have 
especially in Alphabet's case, considerable amounts of cash. And with BABA, so for example, with the recent quarter, they posted huge revenue growth numbers. But when you get further down the line, it's not obvious that leverage is coming there. And maybe that's because they're reinvesting into the business. And so maybe I'm sort of putting them in a corner. But I I, I wanted to just ask your thoughts about that. And then also, you then said that the Alibaba is not is trading at a discount to these companies. And I just wanted to kind of get your sense on that. I think from a PE basis, and I will pull up the numbers after I, maybe I should pull up the numbers before I say it, but I'll do it after I say it and correct if I'm wrong. I think Alibaba's PE multiple is as high, if not higher than these companies. So I'm curious how you're viewing the sort of discount in Alibaba's case. Is it because Alibaba's growing revenue faster or what do you, what do you mean when you say that? Okay, so there's a lot of questions there. Uh, so <laughs> if I forget any, please remind me. Uh, so the first one, the last one you talked about was the PE. So let's talk about that for a moment, the valuation. So their 2017, and this is GAP, their GAP EPS was $2.407 per share. Uh, they do, I mean, like all technology companies, they do give a non-GAP number. But uh, as, you, as you should probably know, technology companies... Their non-GAAP numbers are not really core earnings. It just is an excuse to take away shareholder expense, mm-hmm. uh, share compensation expense. Mm-hmm. So it's arguable that you probably should not be using non-GAAP numbers. But their non-GAAP numbers is $3.41, which is a lot, lot higher than $2.47. This indicates a high level of shareholder compensation expense. But based on the GAAP numbers, they're trading, let me run the numbers, at 160 they're trading about 60 some 60 times, I think 60 times trailing earnings. Okay. And then based on the forward gap numbers, which is around $4 EPS, this is gap again, it's 40 times. They're trading 40 times the forward gap EPS. Of course, I, I want to reiterate, if you were to go online and search, it's going to look even cheaper because they're using non-gap numbers, but they probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, so you did ask a question. Uh, you said this PE ratio is lower than Facebook or Alphabet. And Facebook, as I, I recently released a report on them, they're around like 23, and Alphabet is around 26. So yes, uh, it appears like Facebook and Alphabet are cheaper. However, I, and I believe it was in this podcast that Mike mentioned his own valuation metrics for these technology companies, which are growing revenues very fast, that we don't use, that at least he doesn't use PDE ratio to use as price to sales, saying that uh, price to sales should be under 15 uh, around that uh, ballpark. So I'm inclined to use something similar to that, uh, but basically saying that Alibaba is not at the same maturity level as like Facebook or Alphabet. Uh, they, they have a long, much longer growth path uh, runway. For example, if I were to ask you to, does Amazon have a longer growth runway than Alphabet or Facebook, I think you will agree that Amazon has a much longer growth runway. Right. So in the same respect, because Alibaba has this, is less mature than Amazon, it means they have a much longer growth runway. So that, that it's not really the P ratio that is important. It's, it's uh, I mean, it, it's at this maturity level, they're trading at like 40 times earning when Alphabet or Facebook at the same maturity level were trading 100 to 200 times earnings. And Amazon's trading 100 times earnings right now. 
despite a greater maturity uh, level. So that's the valuation part. Okay. And I'm sorry, can you repeat the other question? There's two other questions, I believe. So first, I want to just interrupt <laughs> to say that you, your first mistake is listening to Mike, I think. I think that's where we, <laughs> we've we we've kind of spotted something. It is. A lot, of li- a lot of people do that, and it's a disaster. So, yeah. But you'll learn, Julian, not to do that. So don't worry. It's a common first error. The, so the question I had... Facebook and Google and Amazon too, for example, get a lot of credit for they, and maybe this is again, to your point of maturity, but I still want to ask it. They get credit because they reinvest and then you see the growth over time and you see the industry dominance over time or whatever else. And so I guess with Baba, what do you see that? And where are you watching for that? Because that's kind of harder to gauge. Good. Good. So, uh, first, I want to clarify, uh, when I mentioned about Alphabet and Facebook getting credit, I wasn't saying they're getting credit for reinvesting in their business, because that's their claim. That's the reason why they don't pay a dividend or repurchase shares aggressively is because they claim that they need the cash to reinvest in their business. I make the claim that this is incorrect. It, I, if they were using the cash and investing in stuff, then I would understand that they're reinvesting their business. However, what they're doing is allowing the cash flow to keep increasing to double digits, billions of dollars, right? There's no reason why anyone would need a $100 billion war chest or like Apple, a $200 billion war chest. That's, that's definitely not reinvesting in your business. So the idea is that's definitely not shareholder friendly at all, right? To, to allow cash flow to keep increasing. For example, I mean, here's the biggest example. If Alphabet were to say, I want to buy Netflix tomorrow for $200 billion, or for $100 billion, $200 billion, it's not going to go well with shareholders. That's going to be a very unshareholder friendly thing to do. Uh, Alibaba, they're very similar. They're also holding uh, a lot of cash or they're just retaining cash and buying things with the cash. And it's very similar in that they're very unshareholder friendly. In the case of Alibaba, it's, I mean, they're Chinese, so there's going to be more bias there because Americans tend to trust American companies more. However, Alibaba doesn't make their case easier when in addition to they're not just holding cash. I mean, that would be bad, but not as bad as what they're doing. They're actually just buying, just putting billions of dollars into buying a lot of stuff. So there's been, I know there's a blog post. I don't know if you're familiar with Deep Throat IPO. Mm-hmm. He has a blog website. He writes about it. He he made the, I mean, he, he has a lot of very good points, uh, although he does take a lot of assumptions. His assumption is that Jack Ma is uh, paying off his friends and buying his uh, friends' companies at big premiums and giving them payoffs. Uh, and to be honest, uh, I don't believe it's feasible for a company to continue finding multi-billion dollar acquisitions year after year. That was something I wrote in my report. That's not, I don't think that's normal. I don't think it's normal that Alibaba is able to find big acquisition year after year to put their money, their free cash flow in. And that's a big, uh, they're not helping themselves with the shareholder alignment when they do such a thing. So I think that answers that question. The other question was about free cash flow and revenue growth. Uh, or basically revenue growth is very fast, but why is profit not growing fast? And that's one of those 
uh, very typical accounting problems, right? It, it makes it sound like there's a problem here is if your revenue is growing, but your profit's not growing, something's wrong. So in regards to their recent quarter, the reason why their profit was not good, and this is not justifying it at all, but the reason why their profit was not high compared to revenue was because of a very, very large shareholder expense, a uh, share compensation expense, especially in regards to Alipay. They said something about how Alipay's valuation increased to $150 billion, so they need to pay more stock or something. To me, even if I'm a bull, I just, I just hear something about them paying, paying themselves more stock. It's not that great. However, if you view it on an annual basis, and I did uh, research this, even, so the revenue might be growing like 40%, 50% every year. However, their, uh, their EBIT and their earnings and free cash flow is also growing like 30%, 40%. So it's not like revenue is growing super fast and then earnings are not growing at all. It's still growing almost in line. Okay. But of course, they're, they're getting a little bit greedy and paying themselves very big share like compensation. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. That was that was a good. I, I liked your or we. I like the the answer to the to the cash question. I think that's a it's a compelling way to look at it for sure. Just sort of briefly, what what would you? How does Baba stand out in your portfolio? I, I I've I you write quite a bit, and I, I know you you cover tech companies. I, I know you cover REITs. I know you you kind of cover the gamut. What, how would you sort of define your investing approach and how does BABA fit into that? Like, what is the, I don't want to, doesn't have to have a role in your portfolio, but I'm just curious how you sort of think about it as compared to what else you own. Great. So in terms of my investing approach, I look for two types of stocks. The first one, basically there's value investing, growth investing, and they're very specific in what I look for. So for value investment, it would need to be extremely cheap. It would, for example, and, and the return to shareholders would need to be there. So I would need to see a definite discount plus cash being returned to shareholders. As a result, I like things like bonds, preferred stock, because you're getting some kind of fixed income. Mm-hmm. And when it's a high yield, it's, there's the value. It's just very mathematical. It's a very sure thing. I, I really like sure things here. Uh, but I don't really like just buying random things at a discount if there isn't definite mm-hmm. return of cash. But uh, most of the things I write about in Teaching Alpha are on the growth side. So when I look, what I look for in a growth company is, uh, so there's no such thing as a sure thing. However, I still try to look for a sure thing. So these are basically things with a moat. I want growth stories that play themselves. Basically, I want a company with a business which has pricing power and business position to the point where every year I could understand why they will make more money than the previous year. So for example, one example of a business I am not uh, comfortable with is like the hotel business. I don't, I would not understand why they would sell more rooms one year than the previous year. Hmm. However, one business which I do like is the e-commerce business like Alibaba or Amazon where I could understand why more and more brick and mortar businesses are going to do business on the internet. So I like these kind of strong tailwinds that fuel strong growth in addition to pricing power, right? So with Alibaba, it's a very similar 
investing uh, thesis to Amazon. Uh, so with Amazon, basically, and most American investors are going to be familiar with Amazon. We're getting this. We're getting two different tailwinds here. One, we're getting the idea that there's a lot more e-commerce business, more and more brick and mortars are going to go online and try to sell on Amazon. And they're going to choose not just e-commerce, they're going to choose Amazon because Amazon has the largest network of sellers and buyers. Two, Amazon has, has tremendous pricing power. So that, that is the key that I think uh, many are underestimating with Amazon, that they kind of see a very high PE ratio but on the other hand, they're underestimating that at the flick of a switch, I think Amazon could raise commissions on both sellers, buyers, and everyone uh, just a little bit. And when they raise commissions, I-, I said 5% in my article on Amazon. If they were to increase the amount they take from every sale by 5%, suddenly their earnings, because of the operational leverage, would increase dramatically. So that that is the thesis of Alibaba. And the Alibaba fits more of a group at a reasonable price perspective. However, in terms of risk profile and the, uh, the role it has in my portfolio, whereas I will be more inclined to heavily overweight a company like Facebook or Alphabet or Amazon, I, I cannot do the same as Alibaba. So while my position in Alibaba is it's, a, it's an overweight position, it's a big position, but it's not going to be anywhere as big as uh, the American companies. And that that's basically because of the potential shareholder misalignment and that that keeps me from really trusting Alibaba to, for example, as they're coming down in price to 160, they have not yet announced a share buyback. And that, that's, that's sounding some alarm bells and is, is an important reason why I could put a lot of money in Facebook, but I cannot put a lot of money in Alibaba. Great. Awesome. I do love that role in the portfolio concept. Like, does it do the dishes? Is it like, is it vacuum? Does it clo- lock up at the end is of the day? Jokes. I, yeah, it's a nice little, it's there for jokes. Yeah. Real quick, there's late breaking news that Jack Ma is, uh, looks like he's getting ready to exit Alibaba altogether. Retire. To his credit, he says he wants to retire earlier than some of his super rich counterparts, which I I would retire way earlier. If I were Jack Ma, I would have been out of there like 10 years ago, 20 years. Like as soon as it hits a million, I'm, go- I'm gone, baby. So I just wanted to get your thoughts, Julian, on what that might mean for you as an investor. I think for Jack Ma's sort of legacy, which you mentioned before, it's fits with his perception of himself as a kind of a teacher primarily or someone who just sort of happened to get rich by creating this company. Uh, but for what should investors be thinking about if Jack Ma is, you know, potentially on his way out? So I think that's a good question. I think first and foremost, Alibaba is not Jack Ma. So this is not like a Tesla and Elon Musk kind of situation where if where a, a unproportionate amount of a responsibility is based on one person. I, I don't think that Alibaba will suffer if Jack Ma were to leave. However, I, I, I think that this is a bluff. To be honest, I do not think he's going to retire early. I think in this regard, wow. he's very similar in Elon Musk that he likes to talk. I do, I do not believe that he's going to retire early. It's, I just don't buy it. Oh, man. It's like a Brett Favre situation, sort of 
in and out, in and out. Generate Elon Musk were to come out and say that he's going to retire, I don't think anyone would believe it. It's just, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Oh, man. Strong answer. Was not expecting the do not believe the key man angle. That's a good one. Man, we're in some kind of environment now, huh? Where CEOs say stuff and you kind of not not that Jack Ma's the CEO. We've made that error on our podcast. And Julian, you confess to a similar one. But these key people can can just like riff. Yeah. And somehow somehow it comes back to the Packers. My bad. My bad. Julian, so let, let's sort of bring it home with just what what is the market not understanding about Alibaba? Like, what is your final sort of takeaway on what Alibaba, what is the thesis, I guess? What What's sort of your, like, this is the thing everybody isn't understanding and needs to understand, which is why I'm holding a position in the stock. Okay, so... Before we come to any kind of conclusion, I think I do want to address a little more about the accounting, uh, since, since I know that you're going to be talking to a bear also on Alibaba. So one of the big accounting things that bears have about Alibaba is the gross merchant volume. I think that's what it is, the GMV. Mm-hmm. They say that it is fake. Okay. So I, I do want to address this because this is a very important uh, this is basically the main bear argument. They say that the numbers at Alibaba are fake, and thus uh, this is a total sham. So to give an, uh, to give an understanding of why bears think it's fake, uh, and it should, uh, is in 2017, China, uh, they said that their GMB on their retail marketplaces was 4.8 trillion uh, RMB, which is 768 billion U.S. dollars of in comparison, I think Amazon had 120 billion U.S. dollar GMB. So, in other words, Alibaba is claiming that they had six times the amount of gross merchant volume in Amazon, and this had a lot of people saying uh, scam, accounting problems. Alibaba is the next Enron. So, I, I do want to address this, and it, it, it's basically one. It depends on your definition of gross merchant volume. So gross merchant volume in general means any sale that takes place, whether or not it is fulfilled on the marketplace. So it's a very uh, rough estimate of sales. It's not sales. Okay, so the problem, the difference with Alibaba and Amazon is that uh, Alibaba is probably a bit more open and lenient to their sellers than Amazon. So they get they do get a reputation for having a lot of fake items, for example, on Alibaba, having a lot of, uh, I don't know if you've heard about like yachts, a lot of boats and real estate on Alibaba, a lot of weird stuff is on Alibaba. They're, they're more of a, if you want to sell it, we'll let you sell it and we're not going to ask too many questions kind of thing. Amazon is a little different. Uh, so what this means is that I do believe they had $768 billion of GMB on their website, even though that is a ridiculous number. And here's the explanation. I believe what happened is that a lot of sellers, in order to increase their rank on the marketplace to become a top seller, they were selling to themselves and making fake sales on the marketplace. That's what I believe is happening. And that, and that is how they generate 
a lot of uh, GMV. And I do not believe those, <laughs> that those sales are not going to actual people. They're going to themselves. From Alibaba's perspective, this shows on their revenues. So the difference with Amazon and Alibaba, uh, and they have a very different commission fee structure. So when I was looking at Amazon, because uh, I had some baseball cards I wanted to sell, and I was like, oh, I wanted to sell it on Amazon. And then, and the biggest competitor would be eBay. And then when I went on Amazon, it was, I did not choose Amazon because the commission fees were very large. So eBay takes about, and this is going way off topic, I'm sorry. eBay takes about 5 7% commission uh, on every sale. And Amazon takes 10 to 15%. Okay, Amazon takes 10 to 15% of every transaction that happens on Amazon. This does not matter if you're a third-party seller or a first-party seller on Amazon. It takes 10 to 15%. Alibaba is a bit differently. Alibaba takes a larger membership fee, but they only take 2 to 5% of every, every uh, sale. And this is on Tmall. This is on their uh, business to consumer. So if you're, a, if you're a Calvin Klein and you go to Alibaba, this is, this is what we're talking about. And remember, they also have an eBay. Their Taobao, that's their consumer to consumer. They do not take commissions on that. They just take a membership fee and advertising fees. So what this means is that for a seller, if they wanted to fake sales on the marketplace in order to boost their rank, and if Alibaba were to allow them to, it would be very cheap for them to do it relatively. Even if you're on Tmall and taking a two to five percent commission fee, it would not you know, it's not that much. Amazon, you have to pay 10% every time. So if you wanted to fake your reputation on Amazon, you would have to pay 10, 15% on every sale. But on Alibaba, you don't need to pay anything on your on the consumer to consumer. But on the business to consumer, you only need to pay 2 to 5%. And to give a reconciliation of revenues to gross merchant volume, okay? I think this is a big one. So in 2017, they had gross merchant volume, again, they said 768 billion U.S. dollars. It's, it's crazy to say that. Uh, their core commerce revenue, which is basically Taobao and Tmall, was $34 billion U.S. That equates to about 4% of the gross merchant volume. So it, it's very similar to that 2 to 5% commission fee that I just talked about. So the idea is that, yes, they are not actually selling $68 billion of products on their marketplace. This is true. Bears are correct. I do not believe that is true. That doesn't make sense. However, they are having $768 billion of sales. They are fake sales though. And But from Alibaba's perspective, they just make the money. It's something that is probably unsustainable in the future. Um, that, that's something I, I need to, uh, I need to uh, admit. However, it's, I do not believe it's fake accounting numbers. Um. So just to follow up here, first of all, the I'm really happy to hear that you had baseball cards you wanted to sell. Somehow that makes me really <laughs> happy that baseball cards are still being traded. So we, we did speak to a bear, Ann Stevenson Yang of, of J Capital Research, and I think, and I wanted to just sort of get your thoughts on this, I think her point was not so much, and what, what I, it surprised me a little bit, but the takeaway I got in general was the thesis was not so much fraud as just overvaluation and opacity and difficult the difficulty of comparisons and with GMV I think I 
can't remember exactly how she phrases it, but it was essentially something like, it's hard to compare year over year numbers to really know based on the numbers, it looks like either GMV is declining or something else not good is going on. And so I guess, do you feel comfortable being able to assess what's happening with Alibaba from year to year? Do you feel that there's enough disclosure for you to be able to, I mean, you're digging in pretty good here and you're making some analysis, which doesn't, isn't obviously bullish by any means, but like you're so credit to you for taking the full picture here, but what is, how comfortable are you with Alibaba's disclosures and with their reporting of their business in general? Sure. So I think it's important to try to explain what is going on. So I think when a lot of bears, they say, and not necessarily in, when a lot of bears talk about like GMV and it's hard to understand, I think it would be wrong to say because GMV is hard to understand, uh, we don't like Alibaba. I think the idea is simply we should not be using GMV at Alibaba because clearly, as I explained, I think that is not the right metric. However, because Alibaba does take uh, annual membership fees, very, very high annual membership fees, it's more the revenue that we should be tracking. That, that would be the more the metric that we should be going with as opposed to GMB. Uh, in terms of my com- how comfortable I feel with their finance, I mean, I think I trust their numbers to the point where I believe they're going up. I believe that they are making a lot of money in their core businesses, especially, and I don't, and understanding what their core businesses are uh, and their business models, I have no reason to believe that they're not performing well. However, I want to reiterate, I think very crucial if they want to narrow that discount to American companies and really get out of this bear market in their stock price, they need to start returning cash to shareholders because from my perspective, yes, they could say they're having $12 billion of earnings or free cash flow last year. However, it's, if they're not willing to use that money to buy back their shares or willing to give that money back, it's kind of meaningless to me. It's not real money. I, I think that's something that I need to see happen uh, before I could start uh, approaching Alibaba the same way I approached something like Facebook or uh, our alphabet. Okay. Okay. So... Any other so is any other part of the thesis that we should that we should leave with our listeners before we go, or do you think that you've kind of? I mean, it sounds like your eyes wide open here, but anything else that you sort of think needs to further explain your thesis? Sure. I then I think your question was, well, what do I think the market isn't understanding right about Alibaba? Mm -hmm. The idea is. I think they're being heavily discounted because of a distrust of Chinese companies and Alibaba themselves. In addition to that, American investors just don't know what Alibaba does. However, even if American investors know what Alibaba does, that's not going to change their discount because the prerequisite is definitely the problem of retained earnings and the fact that they don't seem that shareholder aligned. So I think once Alibaba does uh, align themselves with shareholders by returning cash to shareholders, the 
the next step would be for American investors to really try to understand the parallels between large cap American tech companies and Alibaba. And then once they understand that Alibaba basically is an Amazon like four years ago, uh, the valuations will be much, much different. But of course, it, this does, I do believe this does depend on their management's uh, decision on whether or not they want to return cash to shareholders. Okay. That's what I, I, I like that you're, it's very clear. Like you, you're giving, there's a, there's a clear signpost or two that you're looking for. So it's great. All right. So what are you going to do? Are you, what are you going to do when you uh, make your billions of dollars, Julian? You gonna go to teaching like like Jack Ma or what? What's your deal? When I make my billions, yeah, I will try to use the billions to make more billions. All right, just like Jack Ma, don't return it to shareholders. Okay, I think we're I think we're good. <laughs> yeah, th- this has been great. Thank you so much, Julian. I really think you did a nice job of explaining the bull thesis, and we really enjoyed getting a chance to drill down on it in a few different places yeah you deserve credit because there's a lot of hair on this one so yeah thanks a lot yeah thanks for having me thanks as always for listening to behind the idea we had a lot of fun recording this one and we hope that you enjoyed it as well we got lucky with the jack ma news we had no idea that was going to break obviously if you'd like to get more behind the idea You can follow us on Seeking Alpha to get article alerts when we publish the articles about the podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your your podcasts. You're also more than welcome to email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with feedback, requests, or anything else. We're working hard to improve our sound, and we're expecting to see some improvements over the next few weeks, so stay tuned for that. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. We really appreciate your support and look forward to seeing you next week on Behind the Idea.